All of you on the good earth. One, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space 708, recorded on the week of Monday, August 24th, 2015. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Evening, Sawyer. Good to be back here. Welcome as well, Kat Robison. Hello, everyone. Wonderful to be back on Talking Space and Stateside. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I'm nothing but trouble. Trust me. Oh, I trust you on that, Mark. <laughs> Speaking of trouble, let's get this whole thing started before we get in trouble. And our first story tonight is about the H2 transfer vehicle, or HTV-5, which successfully launched last Wednesday at 6.28 a.m. Eastern Time. It arrived on today's date, the 24th, at 10.02 a.m. Eastern Time, where it was grappled and attached to the International Space Station. Now, you may know there have been a few problems with commercial crew vehicles of late, but this was the second successful resupply mission in a row following the Progress launch a few months ago. Japan fulfilled their part resupplying the International Space Station, and there's still a few more resupply missions coming up, right? Yes, sir, that's correct. HTV was carrying about 8,000 pounds of logistics up to the International Space Station. Uh, HTV is uh, not that big of a, well, it's a pretty big vehicle considering. It's about maybe, uh, it's about uh, 30 feet in length, 14 feet in diameter. Its uh, launch mass is about 36,375 pounds, according to NASA. And it can lift about uh, 12,000 125 pounds uh, of cargo. This particular mission has a really interesting part of it on the unpressurized section of the HTV, just like the Dragon, say, that has a pressurized and unpressurized section. This one, too, also has the same thing. And inside that, uh, that unpressurized area is a telescope called the uh, Calimetric Electron Telescope, or Calais for short. It's an astrophysics mission that is designed to investigate high-energy cosmic rays extending the observatories carried out, the observ- observations, I'm sorry, carried out by uh, previous balloon experiments and other uh, space missions so far. It's set up to go ahead and try to also complement uh, some dark matter searches, so I'm wondering if AMS-02 and Calais are going to go work in tandem with each, with each other, so that's, I'll have to go ahead and do some digging around and find out. But that was one of the larger experiments that are being carried, plus we had a detailed conversation about uh, another interesting experiment that was being carried on, uh, on HTV last week, so if you want to go ahead and run that episode and hear about that one, you can. But all's well as end, ends well, Sawyer, as you said, uh, uh, the uh, HTV was uh, birthed this morning, uh, I believe, too, because of the 
problems we've been having with commercial crew, I mean, commercial cargo, unfortunately, there was a, a little bit of an increase of what was being carried on board. So this one was really, really critical in getting to the International Space Station. Now, we do have uh, some news from commercial cargo as well. Looks like NASA has ordered two more uh, launches for uh, orbital, orbital ATK. Uh, now, they didn't go ahead and announce when these launches are going to take place, but both of these missions designated OA-9E and OA-10E have not been worked out yet as far as, uh, number one, when they're going to launch, and NASA's not saying exactly how much they're going to be. But a lot of people are wondering why um, Orbital ATK was chosen, say, over SpaceX to extend these two, and a lot of scuttlebutt going on around, around uh, from what I'm hearing on the web, is that NASA was looking at the way Orbital had gone ahead and used the uh, uh, Atlas V, and they were able to integrate Cygnus into the Atlas V. Plus, they have that kind of background, that kind of experience. They've built satellites before for other vehicles, to uh, uh, to be launched on, like for instance, the Ariane Five, Atlas, uh, Delta, the whole whole nine yards. So they've got that expertise. Whereas SpaceX is just kind of learning the ropes as far as satellite construction is concerned. Uh, NASA also ordered more flights under the first round of commercial crew contracts. Now I'm looking at a Space News article that was dated uh, just last week, August twentieth. Uh, that it looks like uh, NASA is in negotiations with Orbital ATK and SpaceX to deliver a few more launches under the current contract. They extended the uh, CRS-2 search until November, so we're not going to hear about those contracts until November, but until that time hits, apparently that NASA's seeing the wisdom of trying to go ahead and get some more logistics up there. So they've ordered a few more flights up there. Uh, NASA usually is is pretty open with how much these things are going to cost and so on. But in this instance, they kind of declined to disclose how much the value of this particular order is going to be. And I think the reason why is because they're still trying to work out the uh, commercial crew contract number two. And they don't want to kind of spill the beans and let everybody know how much they're paying Orbital ATK and SpaceX for the uh, for the current missions. So that's a little bit of a recap of what's been going on with the uh, orbital resupply uh, flights. And uh, it's going to be interesting to take a look at come November to see uh, how the new contracts are going to go ahead and be spread around, see if there's any more new players in in the field and see if those new players get any any piece of the pie. All right, so a lot going on in the uh, cargo field right now. Now, there's another private company that has been in the news quite a lot, and they're back in the news again, and that is good old Mars One. And Kathy, I'm going to let you take this lovely one. So we've discussed Mars One on and off on this show, and lots of people have been discussing Mars One. Well, at the recent Mars Society Conference, Mars One actually had a chance to face off directly with some of their harshest critics, two MIT engineering students who last year at the IAC, or the International Astronautical Congress, uh, gave a paper that asked whether or not Mars One was feasible and came to the conclusion that 
based on the current information and supplies available, that any crews sent to Mars would be dead within 68 days. Uh, the two students, Sydney Doe and Andrew Owens, were given the chance this month on August 13th to directly address Mars One CEO, Bas Landorp, and Barry Finger, who's the Chief Engineer and Director of Life Support Systems for Paragon Space Development Corporation. Sydney uh, Doe and Andrew o Owens had the chance to open the conference first, and as any MIT engineering students are wont to do, came armed with lots of data in order to illustrate their case that at this point, Mars One's plans do not include everything necessary to get them to Mars and severely underestimate the capital necessary. Uh, they are claiming Mars One that the first crew would cost about $6 billion to land on Mars, with afterwards $4 billion needed every two years for each additional crew to uh, settle a permanent settlement on Mars. They are arguing for the lower cost because it is a one-way trip. However, uh, Doe and Owens make the argument that Mars One is failing to account for the massive amount of infrastructure that would be needed in order to support this project. Uh, that infrastructure includes life support systems, resources like 3D printers or some way to make replacement parts or either carrying replacement parts with every crew to the surface. Also include systems like growing food, you know, again, included in those life support systems, but, you know, crew resources. Uh, they also make the argument that in order for any of Mars One's plans to be feasible, uh, they need to make much better use of in situ resources than we currently have the technology to do. So they presented all this information, and the Mars One guys, Landsdorp and Finger, both had a chance to address the audience. I think possibly the most significant part of this was that Barry Finger basically agreed with almost every assertion that the MIT team made, agreeing that the plan we have now is not the plan that can take us to Mars. We don't have the infrastructure in place to take us to Mars. Landstorp obviously made the argument that, that we are very familiar from hearing with him, that uh, Apollo made it to the moon with no infrastructure in the space of 10 years. Um, however, MIT had a great response for that, looking at the hardware required for a first landing on the moon, included an Apollo lunar module, the Apollo command module, and a launch vehicle. And that was the only hardware needed for a first landing on the moon. However, Mars One needs a demo lander, communication satellites, an intelligent rover and trailer, a transit habitat, transit propulsion, lander and surface habitat, and of course, multiple launch vehicles. And to put it into monetary, the Apollo landing costs $102 billion, and Mars One is claiming it can do it with $6 billion. As I said before, Finger agreed with a lot of the assertions. Uh, the only contractor that Mars One currently has is the corporation he is with, the Paragon uh, Life Support Systems Development Corporation. And they need contractors and engineers to develop every other system that they would need in order to make a landing on Mars feasible. So to every observer there, it's pretty clear that the MIT engineering students walked away with the victory in this debate. And again, just one more piece of information out there that's just letting us know that at this point, Mars One does not have all of its ducks in a row to get itself to Mars within its claims.
Ken, as I've said in the past, Mars One doesn't even have the money. They don't have the, they don't have the money to do really much of anything at this point. Oh, but Landstorp has an answer for you, Gene. Oh, he this said, somebody, I'm I'm uh, I'm all ears. <laughs> He's got an answer for everything. Let's hear it. Gene, Landstorp says that at any moment a billionaire could just pick up the phone and give them the six billion dollars they would need to get off the ground, because apparently that six billion dollar price tag we keep hearing might not be all they need to get themselves to Mars, but it is what they need in order to get themselves the engineering contracts and the jump start on funds in order to develop these systems. And again, Landstorp and Finger both conceded that the plans they have currently posited and, and put forth are not the plans that would actually get them to Mars. I don't think we're going to see any pixies running around with, with very deep pockets running up to Mars 1 anytime soon. The, the scary part about this, too, is, is some elements of the public actually think this is a legitimate mission. And, in fact, there's a, a story running around. We were going to talk about this last week, but there's some sort of movie that's like I think Engadget and AOL are doing. They're profiling five of these folks that are going to go ahead and, and cut ties with Earth and uh, go to Mars on this thing. Uh, that's if, you know, a, a huge if they think this is this is actually going to work. My bet is I don't think they better start punching their tickets anytime soon. No, the, the problem with any permanent settlement on Mars is that the NC2 resource development is a vital component. And at this point, the technology does not exist to have that Mars manufacturing capability. Now, there are some great research going on. My favorite place doing this research is Kennedy Swamp Works down at Kennedy Space Center. They do a lot looking at NC2 uh, resource utilization. But at this point, no one has the technology to sustain a permanent settlement on Mars, no matter how much money they have, no matter what government they're with, no matter what private billionaire is funding it. No one has the capability to manufacture resources on Mars to sustain a permanent colony. And again, it all comes down to money, really. And I, I think they're dreaming. The thing is, no one is going to Mars alone. Right, exactly. NASA hasn't gone to Mars alone. All of our rover missions you know, that we've sent recently have been international partnerships. Mars Curiosity is not an entirely American mission. That mission has principal investigators and items on that rover from all over the world. These are international missions. No company or no government or no agency is going to Mars alone. The first people to go to Mars will be supported by many different companies, nations, and agencies. Yeah, we've, we've said that several times here on this program, where it's going to have to be an international consortium where everybody is going to be sharing the, the economic burden and sharing the risk and in turn sharing the uh, the scientific outlay and the scientific knowledge. So, you know, again, I'm sorry. I, I love Mars One. They're at least, you know, some. they're at least trying something. But, you know, guys, <laughs> it's uh, it's a pipe dream and it's it's just not going to happen. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, we love talking about it on the show, and I don't think we're ever going to stop talking about it. Uh, so. I mean, I mean, journalistically, this is the gift that keeps on giving. Hey, it's Mars One is the Donald Trump of space agents. <laughs> that is a oh, I I am so using that. Uh, I I think that's the perfect way to stop that one. 
and transition. Now, speaking of failures, I'm kidding, of course, but uh, we are moving on to another topic that is slightly more serious, and that is Virgin Galactic. I know Mark has an update for us. Mark? Well, as longtime listeners have heard before, I'm a FAA electronics technician. Got a fancier title than that, but I've been on my job with the FAA for actually next week. It'll be 40 years. I'm not an expert in what I'm going to talk to you about. This is something I'm simply interested in. I've only read a handful of NTSB accident reports, and so by no means am I top-notch at interpreting all the information that's there. I would encourage you to take the time to retrieve this report and read it for yourself because to me it's extremely interesting and there are parts of it that are extremely tragic because small mistakes, small oversights, and small errors compounded and killed the co-pilot and pilot received serious injuries from this accident last year. First, let me tell you just a little bit about the NTSB to give you a little idea of their qualifications. NTSB is an independent federal agency. They're dedicated to promoting aviation, railroad, highway, marine, and pipeline safety. They've been around since 67. They're mandated by Congress to investigate transportation accidents, determine probable causes, and issue safety recommendations. They study safety issues, evaluate safety effectiveness of government agencies involved in transportation. They make public their actions and decisions through accident reports, studies, et cetera, et cetera. So the NTSB, to me, if you're a listener that's a U.S. taxpayer, they are worth every dime that we pay for that agency to do their job because I think they do an incredible job, sometimes with only very limited information. In terms of information, I remember commenting back last year when we talked about the Spaceship 2 accident that they had an incredible amount of telemetry that they would have received from this accident, and that was going to be a, a, a source of good information for them to determine exactly what happened. Uh, that certainly was the case. As I recall, there were over 600 parameters that they had telemetry on. And just to surprise you, some things that were that were deal breakers in this investigation, there were three uh, data sources or and cameras uh, and recording devices on Spaceship Two that survived the accident. There were six that were either not located after the accident or a couple of them failed. There was one that they got partial data off of. So the telemetry was a big factor because so much of the assets that were on the spacecraft didn't help. Now, I've talked about me, I've talked about the NTSB. Let's talk about the uh, you know, their basic mission. The Spaceship 2 was air-launched from the White Knight 2 carrier aircraft. Uh, the drop occurs around 50,000 feet. In this case, it actually released at 46,400 feet. The next phase of flight is boost, where the rocket motor propels the vehicle from gliding to an almost vertical attitude. They refer to that pitch-up from horizontal to vertical flight as the gamma turn. And that occurs after Spaceship 2 accelerates from subsonic speeds through the transonic region and to supersonic speeds. Now, transonic region isn't a term that I heard of much, but it's something that I'll explain just a little bit of detail why it's 
such an interesting and um, and it's a, it's a speed at which things happen and don't necessarily work in your favor. At Apogee, maximum altitude, that's when you get uh, several minutes of weightlessness. The rocket motor is off and you're, you're in free fall for several minutes. During re-entry, the wings and people have probably seen the images of this. The wings rotate into a feathered configuration. They go from zero degree feather to up to 60 degree feather. And it allows the Spaceship 2's flight to be uh, stabilized and it increases drag. And then around, I believe it's 60,000 feet, they go back to a glide configuration where feathered goes back to unfeathered configuration and then they have an unpowered landing. All of that's great, except it didn't go that well for Spaceship Two. Now, something I'd like to do to illustrate how quick this happened is we're going to do a little countdown and a count up. And I'm going to have one of the team help me with it. And I'm going to call out about um, half a dozen, ten different key points. Now, the flight was only 13 seconds. So listen to the count, and I'll try and give you an idea of, of what happened on that flight. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Release. One, two. Arm and fire rocket. Three, four, five, six. Seven. Zero eight, point eight Mach. Nine. Ten. Unlocking. Eleven. Feather 12, movement. Thirteen. Fourteen. Video 15, end. Rocket 16. motor abort. Telemetry end. Now I gotta say, just reading through this list of these few points, I am I am quite taken with how quick it happened. Arm and fire the rocket was half a second after they released. They were at 0 0.8 Mach, and 0 0.8 Mach is a key point because that's one of the speeds that the co-pilot actually called that out because at 0 0.8 Mach, they refer to that as a bobble where due to the aerodynamics and the speed of the vehicle accelerating, there can be a little bit of instability, and he's, he does that to prepare the pilot for, okay, watch it, here's the, here's the bumpy spot. At 0 0.8 Mach, the co-pilot reached down and put his hand on the feather unlock mechanism, which was to his left, and he proceeded to unlock it. That unlocking took less than two seconds, and the, uh, the feather movement, the actual movement of the wings, happened less than two seconds later. From that initial feather movement, the start of the breakup was another two seconds after that. The video ended less than a second later. The rocket motor aborted as the video ended and the vehicle started to break up. And then telemetry ended a couple of seconds later. So from seven and a half seconds to 16 seconds on our count was the beginning of the end. And, and it didn't take, but honestly, it didn't take but about seven seconds for things to, to come apart. Now, I mentioned that I would give you a little bit of um, other information about this, again, from the NTSB report. Emergency response. You know, you'd like to think that if something goes bad, that people are going to be there to help you right away. It didn't work out that well in this case. And it was due to some 
miscommunication and I think it, it doesn't state this in the report, but I think people had gotten used to spaceship to, uh, you know, drop flights, glide flights. They had gotten used to things going so well that um, maybe they just didn't have the level of caution that you would hope for. There were three helicopters that responded to the accident scene, which of course was spread across a, uh, a few miles of desert. The accident scene was contained within the licensed operating area for the for the launch and and reentry. The parties that uh, that responded to the accident was the Mojave Airport manager. Uh, he was a key key player in this, and that he advised the Kern County Fire Department that uh, there was an accident, and for their helicopter to respond. Unfortunately, the Kern County Fire Department helicopter was not on scene. They were at a different staging area that took them a little bit longer to respond to. The airport manager drove over to the National Test Pilot School at Mojave and uh, arranged for the school's helicopter, uh, firefighter, EMT, and flight surgeon to respond. And it was actually the National Test Pilot School helicopter that was the first one on the scene. The uh, third helicopter on scene was the Mercy Air Bell 407 helicopter, and that's the medical that had medical personnel that began uh, that took care of the process of transporting the pilot to the hospital that was severely injured. Now the time frame, and this is the part that surprised me, the fire department helicopter took 27 minutes to get to the accident scene. The National Test Pilot School helicopter took 11 minutes. And the Mercy Air took 16 from when they were called up. The total amount of time from the accident to when the pilot was on board the helicopter headed to the hospital was an hour and 16 minutes. And he arrived at the hospital an hour and 46 minutes after the accident. So this is some spread out area. There's some flight time involved. But uh, the mistakes that were made in, in having assets ready to respond is just a shame. Fortunately, it turned out uh, well for the pilot in that his injuries, as severe as they were, were managed by the personnel that did arrive when they arrived and that he made it okay. The hazards of the feather system is that during this transonic region, and I'm going to read just a, a sentence from a 1965 handbook titled Aerodynamics for Naval Aviators. It says, during transonic region between 0.9 and 1.1 Mach, it is very probable that flow on the aircraft components may be partly subsonic, less than 0.75 Mach, and partly supersonic over uh, or less than 1.2 Mach. So as they approach that Mach 1, there's different things that are happening over the control surface of the aircraft. And the flutter system was designed such that at, not at 0.8, excuse me, but at Mach 1.4, that they would unlock the lock mechanism for the feather. And the aerodynamic forces kept it stable from Mach 1.4 up until Apogee when they actually would command the feather to operate. At Mach 1.5, there would be a caution message. If they hadn't unlocked it, they would get a caution message on their instruments. And if by Mach 1.8, they had not unlocked it, they had to shut down the rocket motor and glide to a landing because the hazards above Mach 1.8 is that they would have, on reentry, they would have higher G loads, higher speeds, flutter, high heat loads, and increased risk. 
it would not be a uh, comfortable landing and it might might be fatal if they were unable to unlock the feather mechanism at higher speeds. So that's why they had the Mach 1.4 call out or to, to actually unlock it at 1.4. Unfortunately, the co-pilot commanded the feather to be unlocked at Mach 0.8. And during that transonic uh, speed range is when the tail, the, the, the forces acting on it caused it to move into a feather position where if they had been going faster above Mach 1.4, those aerodynamic forces would have kept it right in line, right where it needed to be, even though it was unlocked. So, you know, the accident is referred to as pilot error. They also look into design considerations. The training of these individuals is phenomenal. The pilot and co-pilot, they were in a simulator 34 times during a month and a half or so. 14 times they were in a simulator together. Five times were full mission rehearsals with, they call it an integrated simulation. But during the sims, they had no model that was part of that of an uncommanded feather deployment. The literature that they refer to, their flight test card and their pilot operating handbook, didn't exactly address the hazard of this, although it was known by people. It wasn't spelled out. It wasn't highlighted. It wasn't really made super obvious. Now, the, uh, the next thing that unfortunately I've got to uh, throw in there is the FAA. Now, that's, that's my house, although this has nothing to do with my job, as I said earlier. But the FAA and, and their process of, of approving experimental permits for flight, and this is early in the, in the Spaceship 2 program, FAA staff members stated that during the permit evaluation process, their questions to scaled composites that were not directly related to public safety were either filtered or scrubbed. One FAA evaluator noted that questions that were filtered, the answers they received was so washed out, it's not even what they asked for in the beginning. So basically, it's a, it's a manner of, unfortunately, some of the management of the FAA commercial space program tried to help out the process of getting these permits approved. They had 120-day review period, and there was a lot of pressure to meet those deadlines. Does that sound like it would be a hazard? So the FAA made some mistakes. The FAA has a uh, lessons learned database that when you look at it, hasn't been touched in years, and there's only three entries in it, all from 2010. So, you know, the FAA has some work to do there. There were so many things that that should have worked and worked well, but with just one mistake at the wrong time, in the wrong manner, it caused something very, very sad and, and a big impact to their program. Uh, everything I read in the NTSB report says that Spaceship Two is, is a good uh, spacecraft, good aircraft, that all of their inspections that were done that are part of that process of building it and following up with it afterwards we're good also. There's a lot of recommendations that when you get to the end of the uh, report, you can look at the conclusions. And one of the things that uh, I'll throw out there before I wind up is that the FAA commercial space transportation process could be improved if inspectors were signed to a commercial space operator rather than an individual commercial space launch operation. 
That way the inspectors could be more familiar with the operator's training and procedures and they could identify ways to enhance safety. And that's what so many of, of us in the FAA are looking to do is to make things safer, to not even have unsafe situations. And um, well, uh, with the recommendations from the NTSB, you know, there's the input that everybody can benefit from. And again, they don't have regulatory authority, so they're just recommendations. And I know this was quick, but I'll encourage you to take a look at the NTSB report or do a search if you want to read about all the permitting and launch processes. Take a look, do a search for F-A-A-A-S-T. Hey, Mark, dumb question here with reference to what had actually had occurred. Because I remember somebody with reference to trying to go ahead and drill it down a pilot error. I remember the administrator of uh, the NTSB basically saying there's no really such thing as pilot error. They, they try to go ahead and say, okay, but what made the pilot do that? One of the things I'm going to ask you about is did they create sort of their own single point of failure on this thing? I recall uh, seeing the, um, the actual day that this was put out and at the actual conference that that was held remember uh, robert Sumwalt was trying to push the uh, the team there to say hey look this you guys had that sort of a single point of failure here with that lock and unlock mechanism whereas you relied on the pilot to go ahead and do that is could something like that be automated and is that really the fault of either scale composites or virgin galactic in your estimation that's tough to say because I don't I don't really understand cockpit uh, you know flight control automation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you one of the findings from the conclusions of the report. It said, and this is definitely a this is a tremendous factor. The co-pilot was experienced high workload as a result of recalling tasks from memory while performing under time pressure with vibration and loads he had not recently experienced, which increased the opportunity for errors. Yeah, because I'm looking at a transcript from the actual conference, and a uh, member Sumwalt here was saying that uh, in his estimation, they sort of created a single point of failure, and this is just, this shouldn't be, be acceptable. I mean, humans make mistakes, and if we go ahead and allow that to occur, it, maybe we're, we're putting too much on the human in, in this vehicle, and maybe some of the stuff may have to be automated for the future. That makes sense to me. I, I don't really know what's involved when we make the simple statement of if they had some you know automated system that would do the unlock at exactly the right time mm-hmm. I, I i just i i don't know what's involved you know you tend to right. think from uh hearing about what programmers do that oh that would be simple but um when it's a manually operated system that's the that's the catch right. it's designed and it's made to be manually operated and um yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's uh, academic at this point. It should be interesting to see what they learn and what they go ahead and put into the, at least the, the new uh, version of it, the VSS Voyager that they're building. Speaking of Virgin Galactic, they announced a couple of days ago that they are going to go ahead and pursue Launcher One, which is a booster that will go ahead and uh, launch small sats. And this is a, in an effort to keep the company solvent and going while they kind of lick their wounds from from this event and look forward to the future. And one day we might see tourists flying on this thing, but I don't think we're going to – I think they're, they're basically telling, you know, would-be astronauts, if you will, you're going to have to wait a little bit while longer. This is just not going to happen as quickly as uh, as we had hoped. 
All right, a lot there on Virgin Galactic. Uh, hopefully they'll get up and going soon, and obviously we'll be keeping an eye on what they're doing, and we'll keep you all up to date. Now, you may have heard recently that the ISS is getting a new program manager. The former manager, Mike Suffredini, stepped down. He's retiring, and in his place will be Kirk Shireman, who is the deputy director of the Johnson Space Center, and was actually his former deputy. So he will be taking over as program manager. I know he recently did an interview with the Houston Chronicle talking about his time with the ISS. But before that, Talking Space spoke to him back in July at the ISS Research and Development Conference. While I was there, I got to talk to him about some of the things going on science-wise for the ISS. Keep in mind this conference was July 7th through 9th, so this was just after the SpaceX failure. So we talk a lot about that and the future of the ISS. So I won't spoil any more. Here's myself with Mike Suffredini before he retired. So one big thing I've been wondering is after the end of the shuttle program, in terms of down mass for the station, you're pretty much relying solely on Dragon. Has that affected you guys much, and how have you been working around that? Uh, no, it hasn't affected us at all. Dragon has plenty of capability. In fact, since we started flying with those guys, we've increased the number of powered uh, lockers and therefore freezers that we can both take up and bring home. And so um, the thing we had to do was to, to uh, close the gap between when shuttle flew its last flight and uh, when Dragon flew its first flight with, with recoverable down mass, we were filling up the freezers. Um, and so uh, while we got fairly full, uh, we didn't really approach the point that I worry about, the point I worry about is where I don't have any redundancy. So, so today, for instance, I can lose a Melfi, but we can put the sample, rearrange the samples and still be okay. We never got to the point where we couldn't stand a failure, but we were pretty full by the time the first Dragon flew. Okay. When it came to things like figuring out SpaceX and CST-100 going into the manned side then, did any of that play any factor into doing uh, selection for crew as well as the vehicles and their capabilities, or is that solely based off of their crew capacity? You mean, it, did did anything play into the selection process for who we ultimately chose? Mm -hmm. Well, the selection process is um, a very well uh, structured process, and so they make a proposal and you uh, grade their proposals based on your insights, and we have based on what they say, and in this case, we had done some early work with all three of the providers, so we kind of knew uh, some of their early work, so we had some insight into their design, and that was a, that was allowed to be a factor in the selection process, and so and and uh, past performance uh, and clearly cost. Uh, so those are the three factors: technical, past performance, and cost. And so uh, that through that process, uh, both SpaceX and Boeing came in um, as uh, clearly uh, capable of vehicles within the cost range we, we could afford. And so what changes are you planning on making, if any, once CST and SpaceX get their manned operations up and running? Well, it really has to do with stepping up to four-person crew. So the systems on board can support four crew. Uh, we have four uh, sleep stations, so we have places for them to reside. Um, so really the only thing we had to do on board ISS was first put the docking system on board and check it out along with the communication system that we have to install. And, and then, of, of course, we have to up the up mass that we fly each year in order to account for the fourth crew. And the fact that our plan is once we get to fourth crew, we're going to do direct handover. 
Um, indirect handover saves you, saves you up mass as well because during direct handover then you've got eight crew members for eight days that you also have to provide up mass for. Uh, so, of course, we made those adjustments in our budget. This, the the uh, cargo vehicles we have procured for those years include the, that up mass. So really the mod we have to do now is finish our reconfiguration of the station, but after that it's just waiting. So in terms of that, are you going to have to increase the number of supply flights for things like SpaceX and Orbital? Because now I don't think you have ATV anymore, so it's pretty much HTV progress in those two, correct? Yes, and but but the plan always was about six, about six uh, in our current configuration, about six SpaceX orbital flights and one HTV flight. So that that has been our plan uh, from the very beginning. I mean, ATV was going away. We knew new ATV was going to be done for a few years now. So that's the plan. So what about the future of the ISS itself? Uh, are there any plans for any more module rearrangements or any thoughts and considerations into uh, the future of the station as we look into possibly extending it to 2024 or even beyond? Um, our Russian colleagues are planning on flying a couple more modules. They have a, um, a multi-purpose uh, laboratory module, MLM. Uh, there's a node uh, that they want to fly. And, uh, and then they have a power module that they'd like to fly. So those are the three that, that are on the list of things for us to do once we complete the reconfiguration on the U.S. segment. That is not to say that something won't come up and that we'll support, but that's the current plan in terms of ISS configuration. Now on SpaceX 8, um, we're flying the beam module. So there will be, it's really a demonstration module. But you'll, you'll, if you know, we do fly around pictures, you'll see a little module poking out the back of Node 3, but that's a, that won't be there for the life of the ISS. That's a temporary thing. Okay, going back a second, when you go into those, you know, larger crews where you have, you know, eight people for eight days, or even if you have just a seven-person crew, uh, are you going to have to do anything to prepare in case there is other failures, such as, you know, the insane three that have happened in the last eight months because you're planning on having more people up there? Remember, every time we fly crews, we also have a vehicle for to rescue them. So, yes, we have eight crews, but we also have two vehicles on board. So if we get to a point where we have a failure and we can't sustain eight crew members and the three on the Russian segment, then we'll, you know, we'll send them home a little bit early. But that's a very short window. Um, you know, we used to have shuttles come up, and we, we had even more crew than that on at any one time. Of course, the shuttle was was taking care of uh, uh, the majority of their needs. But, um, you know, so it's it's completely uh, doable. Uh, and and the and if we get into a bind, then we would we just send the, one of the crews home. The ones that's planning on going home, we'd probably pack them up, send them home a little early. But in terms of, like, supplies and resupplies, if you have seven crew members, are you still going to have to uh, increase the number of flights or increase the amount of stuff that you bring up to sustain that, you know, six months leeway just in case? Yeah, so the um, the new cargo contract, the RFP for the new cargo contract, actually encourages providers to provide a little more up mass per flight. In addition to that, both providers currently were getting more up mass on their vehicles than we had before, and it's for two reasons. One is because we're learning to pack more densely with less foam and things like that, so every flight we become more and more efficient, which means efficient means nowadays, efficient for us means less and less foam. And um, the providers are also finding us other locations to put items to. So when we had the first uh, orb accident, we 
it's not very efficient for the crew on orbit, but if you're trying to get up mass to orbit, we can break up bags and put them in small spots. And so the vehicle providers have been working with us on that. Orbital is the same now. They're, they're fixing to fly. They've been working on modifications to allow us to put even more cargo in their vehicles. So we start off with them at about, uh, you know, two and a half metric tons, give or take, probably mostly take. Um, but, um, but they're new, they've made mods to their vehicle and on an Atlas and on the new Antares will be at about three and a half metric tons. So each of the flights, uh, now the current vehicles we're starting to get more on, that helps some of it. And then when we procure the new vehicles, uh, we expect to get vehicles that have maybe a little more up mass, maybe the three and a half metric ton range. So the same number of flights possibly, maybe one less and still all the cargo we need. So we're accommodating that really in the new design. So it sounds like the ISS is in good shape for the future. If there's one thing you wish you could see for the future of the ISS, what would that be? Um, <laughs> that's an excellent question <laughs> for the ISS. Um, yeah, I think I'd like to see for the future of the ISS, um, I'd like to see it extended a little bit more in terms of life. We have plenty of life on board and it's, uh, in general, it'll be the easier way to transition. And uh, and someday in the future, I'd like to be, see a big fat commercial module hanging off the, hanging off it somewhere and uh, that'll eventually uh, separate when ISS's life is completely run out and live on its own. Anything else you'd like to add? No, that's that's it. I, it's a great program, and I, I the the this conference has been a huge success, and um, and I think I'm most excited. Everybody says this, but I think I'm most excited by all the new faces I've seen. Um, it's just really uh, it's tremendous how much interest there is in the use of the International Space Station. So that that by itself makes this whole uh, conference a huge success in my mind. Thank you very much. Thank you. So a few interesting points in there. First, the ISS going to a seven-person crew. That is going to be very interesting and obviously a lot more science. Another thing, the ISS is not done being built, and that's the beauty of it, is that you can keep adding on to it with those Russian modules coming up, and of course the inflatable module on SpaceX 8, like he mentioned. Now, lastly, I liked the thing he mentioned at the very end about the future of the ISS, wanting to see it A, go beyond 2024, which was the big thing that they talked about at the conference, was extending it beyond that deadline, and also adding a commercial module to it that can then separate and become its own station after they deorbit the ISS. What do you guys think of that? Well, one of the things uh, that NASA has always been saying is, is once they deorbit ISS, that's pretty much it. They're out of that ballgame, but they really, really hope that commercial comes in and that also these commercial crew capsules that are being designed will also continue to service that station. So what they're trying to do is literally try to build a commercial infrastructure in low Earth orbit. And I think we're seeing the beginnings of that percolate with the International Space Station. I think that's what Suffredine was talking about. And I think that that's just a continuation of what NASA has been trying to do with low Earth orbit, which is to get NASA focused on pushing outward its journey to Mars and to really hand low Earth orbit to the commercial space industry. So I think it's very much in line with their current plans and what they've been pushing toward. But at the same time, that big thing of, you know, once commercial crew gets going, they can bring seven people aboard the ISS. They have the things. Uh, they have everything they need. They'll have the vehicles if there's an emergency. So a seven-crewed ISS in the near future is also going to be interesting, and uh, I'm excited to see that happen.
yeah, it means more science and uh, more hands to do some more stuff. And hopefully if we can get Robonaut 2 squared away, uh, he can go out there or she can go out there, whatever you want to call it, and uh, do a lot of the stuff that we're doing now for EVA while the humans are over there working the science angle. So Robonaut 2 could be doing the maintenance stuff. The humans can really be doing the hard work of science. So this is going to be an exciting time for the ISS. Exactly, and I'm hoping many of these visions that he had and the things he was talking about will continue onward after his tenure ends. So again, best of luck to Mike Suffredini and all of his future endeavors, and we'll see where the ISS goes after that. Alright, so continuing along then, you may know about a month ago, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center opened up an addition to their Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit. That exhibit includes a memorial to the Space Shuttle Challenger and Space Shuttle Columbia crews, but it is a very unique exhibit. And our very own Gina Hurley went and got to take a look at it, and she joins us now for this special report. Gina, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Sawyer. Yeah, I have to express, really, the profound impact that the Forever Remembered exhibit at Kennedy Space Center inside the Atlantis larger exhibit can make on a person that lived through these incredible space tragedies. I knew it was open. We planned plenty of time to visit. And I sort of wandered in there. And the first thing you see is a hallway. And along both sides of this hallway, one side is Challenger and one side is Columbia. And there are seven memorials on each side to every fallen astronaut in order of crew importance, or position in the crew, I should say. And what was so striking was that inside each of these tributes and memorials were personal effects that were important to the astronauts. And without going into much detail, uh, just because I think everybody needs to experience it for themselves and absorb it, but each one of these really did... um, capture who that person was. There might have only been three or four items in each box, but the way they were hung and displayed with lighting effects and everything, it was just remarkable. And you really walked by each one and spent a minute and you really got to know who that person was, not just the astronaut behind the flight suit, but the person. And it was just a a powerful impact. I want to say like each astronaut's soul was inside that memorial. But you go a little further beyond that hallway and you're not done. I turned to the right and I didn't see it coming, but I was amazed and surprised that there were debris pieces both from Challenger and Columbia. And I don't want to do a disservice to the impact that it could make on a person, so I'll leave some details out, but it was haunting and incredible. And I noticed that a lot of people in the memorial hallway didn't even take a turn right. I don't know if people are just instinctively go to the left or they just sort of 180 and walked out and didn't, but there was nothing, there were no signs or anything saying more this way or anything. It was a very quiet room. Kids weren't running around. Potentially there was one adult or two adults in there and no one really spoke. People would stand there and try to take it in and just sort of quietly walk out. Another one or two people would come in. Definitely was not crowded because they very quietly left that for people to discover. And again, it just, the impact or how profound it was displayed was very powerful. 
and exiting in the other direction was sort of the emotion behind the tragedies. There were videos of return to flight. There were videos of the emotional recovery, children's letters and things to NASA, and um, just a lot of footage of the crews and uh, NASA went next and how they pulled it all together again and quotes from the presidents at the time, of course. But, you know, nobody needs to see Columbia break apart or challenge or explode. So they did it all without that. And, you know, my kids who were there and took it in and saw it and had questions and had very good insight, but they still didn't live through it. So you could tell there was a bit of a disconnect. And I don't want to just write that off to them being younger or not as, you know, mature as an adult yet, but it just, you could tell that the older people there who had the memory of living through it were more deeply impacted by what they saw and what they were trying to absorb. I still haven't even really even begin to able to talk about it with anybody that, you know, is in my inner circle. Cause I, it, it, I just, I, I think people need to describe it or take it in themselves does anybody have any questions? Do you want me to keep talking? Yeah. I don't know what else to say. I'm I trying have a to for you, Gina. Mm-hmm. When you first walked into the memorial area of the exhibit, what was your first impression? What was the first thought or first feeling that really hit you? Well, I entered through the hallway of the individual astronaut tributes, and it was striking that they chose very personal effects that the astronaut families must have donated for the purpose of this memorial. Things like a coffee cup, a flight jacket, piece of music that was beloved. So you really got a sense for the everyday minutia of their lives and not just how their life ended? What was important to them, who they were, what they stood for, what, what mattered to them. Clearly, each one of those 14 individual tributes had a piece of their soul inside them. The way it was lit, it was just beautiful. It really was so beautifully done. Gina, first off, it's good to hear hear you again on the microphones. Uh, Welcome back. Was there any indication in the exhibit that the families did have a lot of input as to how it was designed or anything like that? Was there any insight into that at all? No, I I didn't see it. And I definitely looked for who got credit for designing this. No, I, there was, it was all very understated. This was about no one else but those crews, those ships, and then sort of the collective we of the public afterwards. No other stood out at all. But I can add that the families did actually have uh, a slight input into the exhibit, and they, all of them, every single family member from Challenger and Columbia, gave it the final approval before it went on display. I can imagine they must have had some sort of family viewing ahead of it, and it must have been it must have been a very difficult experience for those families because it must have almost driven the tragedy back home to them like it was all fresh again it It certainly was shocking to me what I saw in there. I was not prepared that there were pieces of the ships so um, of the orbiters, so that i yeah, I still really am trying to process what I saw. 
Sounds to me like it's a an exhibit that you might want to make sure that you've got that little packet of Kleenex with you as you walk through. The lighting and how the lighting was done, especially where the uh, debris of the ships was just amazing. I mean, this was obviously well thought out, well planned. Um, they really took deference, I think, to make this strikingly beautiful and kind of haunting at the same time. It was, I just, it, my compliments to NASA, Delaware North, and the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing this. We will definitely make that all of us, I think, is, are adding that to our list of must-sees when we go to the Kennedy Space Center. Again, yes. yeah, again, Gina, thanks so much. Well, you know, just an, a, a last note. I mean, Kennedy Space Center did such a phenomenal job with the Atlantis exhibit. Obviously, they did a terrific job with the Saturn V Center. But here's Atlantis. I mean, that Saturn V that's lying there never flew. But it's beautiful and pristine and white and stands like, you know, or lies down and you can almost picture it standing in all its glory. Here Atlantis is scorched and burnt and used and, you know, still ready to go again if, if somehow you could find the, the pieces to make her fly. But the way she, um, this memorial is sort of almost under her wing, if you really think about it, it's she sort of has her wing over her fallen crewmates. It, it's just the whole thing to take in. It's superbly powerful. And this visit especially, we spent four hours in Atlantis, tried to take it all in from top to bottom. And really the next trip anybody makes to Kennedy Space Center, plan to spend as much time in Atlantis as possible. But with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you, Gene McCulka. Fun time, sir. Glad always to be here. I always learn a lot. Glad to have you. Thank you as well, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure. And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Thanks, Sawyer. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Indeed. Now, if you have any questions or any comments about what we talked about or you have any generic space questions for us that you want us to answer on the show, you know you can email us, mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Tweet us at Talking Space or post it on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Talking Space. We've been getting all your messages. We appreciate them all, and we read them all. Hopefully we'll hear from you. But we'll be back next time. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.